Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Nicole Masters. Uh, Nicole recently, very recently, published a book on soil health called For the Love of Soil. I was introduced to Nicole through Jesse Bassard, a mutual friend who does creative media and marketing and actually runs a ranch in Eastern Oregon. Uh, she recommended to me Nicole's book on soil health. I haven't finished it yet, but I've read enough to be hooked and want to talk about it. Uh, Nicole, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me, Tim. I know from having read the introduction to the book that you're not from around here uh, originally. <laughs> Who are you and, and how, how did you get interested in soil health? Um, so as listeners might pick up, I don't speak with an American accent. Um, I'm a, originally from New Zealand. Um, I've been involved in what we're terming regenerative agriculture, I guess, for over 20 years. Uh, I actually went to university to study to be a great white shark researcher. And uh, in that process, you know, you have to learn about cell biology and, and I did a ecology degree. So I had to learn about plants and I discovered soil through that process. And it, it just kind of lit a fire that's never really turned off. Um, so, yeah, I've been working uh, throughout New Zealand and Australia and Canada and the US, um, North America, probably since 2013. Uh, and there's something about these landscapes and, and that just, yeah, that just really sings to me. Yeah. If, if I could jump in there before you talk about how you got interested in soil health, one of the comments that Nathan Sayre made in his book, Politics of Scale, A History of Range Science, was that rangelands are maybe more like oceans than anything else we could conceive of in terms of drawing an analogy. You have these massive, massive landscapes with, you know, really complex, essentially wild ecosystems. And we're trying to harvest, you know, just uh, enough of that to make a living, uh, you know, converting plant material into into beef or lamb or whatever. Uh, so I think it's mm -hmm. interesting that you were originally interested in uh, things like ocean Oceans. biology. The other connection that I think is is maybe not too far off. I have a friend, uh, Don Llewellyn, who's been on the podcast before, who is a ruminant nutritionist. And mm -hmm. uh, he has described the, the, the rumen ecosystem, they call it now, because there's so many organisms and different kinds of organisms in there, uh, like the ocean. In fact, one of the, uh, he's got a, a scanning electron microscope photograph of what looks like, you know, kind of a, a whale-shaped microorganism, and it's got some other microorganism riding on its back, uh, catching a ride. The big one, the whale, is looks like it's on the way to eating something else. Uh, but that, according to him, fairly accurately captures what's going on in the in the rumen. And uh, many people have also likened the microbiological community in the rumen to what exists in the soil in terms of the the diversity and the number of organisms. You know, Don would say that there are over a billion uh, individual 
organisms in a single milliliter of rumen fluid. And I think something similar has been said about, you know, say a, a cubic centimeter of soil. So I think mm-hmm. there are some some uh, connections there. Yeah, and I often help people sort of think about those connections in soil in terms of uh, human nutrition and, and gut function and microbiome. And what's really interesting is just the connections that we're finding between uh, human health, the gut microbiome, uh, soil microbiology, and that uh, plant gut microbiome. And what's exciting is just to see the breakthroughs that we're seeing in terms of human health, because so many of the the gut microbiome breakthroughs are reflected in what we're seeing in the soil. And what's really interesting is some of these organisms um, that is that they're seeing is so important for human health are also essential soil microorganisms. So it's almost like there's no separation really between uh, often how our cells function and how soils function or uh, ruminant functions. And I think the more you delve into it, um, if you know you have a particular interest maybe in human health or soil health, you start to see these correlations and these connections and go, oh, wow, the pattern's actually the same. Right. How did you originally get interested in soil health? Um, I moved back to my father's property. So I majored in soil science and um, I did that really intelligent thing where you leave university and you get, I, well, not you, but women, get pregnant. Um, And so I ended up being a single parent uh, in a rural community and um, found it really hard to find any work. It's not easy, you know, when you've got a young child to kind of find work. And my father actually helped me out and we, we brought a worm farm it was called a deceased worm farm estate. We found this advert in a paper. And so I started to make um, a really top quality worm extracts of vermicast uh, that I was selling to orchardists, uh, pastoral guys, and um, what I suspect were marijuana growers, but I can't say that for sure. So I was selling a lot of vermicast to hydroponic stores um, mm-hmm. because their particular growers understand the the value of worm castings and and when you get down into the microbiology of it and look what comes out of a worm's butt, uh, I call it the elixir of life. So all the microbiology um, that a plant needs for health, hormones, um, uh, different types of enzymes, uh, just an absolute multitude of benefits that comes out of a worm is like it's perfectly designed for optimal plant health. So I learned a lot about how to create the optimal a worm casting for whatever particular situation it might be, like that might be to grow strawberries or um, for us, we were growing avocados. Uh, and yeah, so I learned a lot through that process and it's just been an ongoing evolution of uh, what is it that this particular soil needs and and what you'll find is from the people that I work with in North America, pretty much all of them now have large scale worm farms uh, because there's things that we can really harness through that process of quorum sensing. I don't know if you've heard about quorum sensing, but this mm-hmm. this idea of switching switching biology on or off. And what we see in a lot of rangeland is a lot of these biological systems have basically gone to sleep. Um, I call them constipated. Like if we go back to that idea of, of the soil being like a stomach, um, then constipation is what's happening out there. So a lot of nutrients that are just locked up. Um, we have, you know, you might have bare ground, uh, we're not seeing optimal resilience and recovery. And a big part of that is because of this biological signaling. Right. I read somewhere recently that 
I don't know if this is exactly the same thing that you're talking about uh, in terms of epigenetics, uh, mm-hmm. genes that do certain things switching on and off. This sounds more like in an entire ecosystem, things that get switched on and off rather than genetically inside yeah. the organism. But uh, something that I was reading said that epigenetics explains some of why certain elements of uh, ancient Chinese medicine is can be effective, not because the thing mm-hmm. itself is effective, but because it stimulates something to happen in the body genetically that wasn't happening before. Mm. And, and, and they, they're actually using quorum sensing to explain some of that Chinese medicine. But if you're thinking mm. about epigenetics, which is the expression of a gene, that right. is given by the protein sheath. And that protein sheath responds to signals. So these signaling proteins are part of what creates gene expression. And, you know, we've been very much focused on DNA and, you know, that you now can get tests done to see, do you know, have the, the genetic, um, let's say this kind of cancer or these kind of issues, does it run in your bloodlines? And what they're finding is that only 0.1% of things that we see expressed in our body actually come from the DNA. It's the 99.9% that comes from the proteins that actually switches on Mm. Um, DNA expression or not. So that's the that's the science of epigenetics. And that's certainly what we see um, through working with soil and working with, with animal health is that you can influence that epigenetic response in livestock. And we see that as um, we are lifting biological function, we're actually lifting the quality and health of animals. So some of the things we see might be um, an increase in the fine micron of wool, for instance, um, animal behavioral traits, um, good mothering abilities, some of these things that maybe have been um, bred out through that focus, maybe on one aspect or another, that actually through epigenetics, through that expression of the environment, you get, you know, an animal that's locally adapted for Montana and someone brings an Angus up from uh, Texas and finds they just don't do well here um, because of their ability to adapt to their environment. But the the quorum sensing actually comes down to, you know, every single cell has 100,000 different receptors on the outside of those cells, and they are waiting for different types of signals. And so those cells are the same in our body, or you think about bacteria or protozoa or soil organisms, they don't have eyes and ears, they just have these signaling receptors. So it's how do we we enhance that, that signaling process to really enliven and waken soils up? Yeah, I'd like to go back to a word you used earlier. You talked about uh, regenerative agriculture. How would you say regenerative agriculture is different from sustainable agriculture? You know, sustainable is the word that's been around for a while, uh, for long mm-hmm. enough and used widely enough that, you know, eventually it becomes a buzzword that has almost no meaning uh, or yeah. or becomes almost a, a tautology, you know, that which persists is by definition sustainable and i think i think my guess is that part of the um the need for a new word to describe what people probably originally meant by sustainable comes from mm-hmm. you know kind of a, a rejection of that that circular logic how what how what would you say regenerative agriculture means well i think if you look at the root word for what sustainable means it means literally to sustain which means to maintain the same um, right. And I think it was a pretty pretty low benchmark. And and I think particularly when people started out, there was this 
this grand vision, I guess, to, to, you know, really get systems functional. But now if you look at all the big ag chemical companies and the big um, franchise food companies, even the meat companies, they all talk about, you know, sustainable beef or sustainable agriculture. So it's, it's been effectively greenwashed because it, it's lost any, any meaning. Whereas regenerate really calls forth, are we enlivening? Are we bringing more life to, are we restoring cycles? So water cycles, carbon, um, uh, are we more, are we bringing more profitability and wellness to, to, to any operation? So it's a very broad term. I mean, I think it goes much further than just agriculture, but it's a, it's a call for are the outcomes that you're producing on your piece of land, are you improving those over time? And, and uh, we, we were talking before we started to record and just talking about how, um, you know, really improving function on rangeland. We can be starting at a very, very low base. I mean, I'm working on quite a few ranches that were, you know, part of that 1930s dust storm and they, they, they're still basically on blow dirt. And it's like, okay, even if we just get a few more plants, we're actually regenerating. We're actually starting to get that system functioning. So it's it's a process. It's a journey. There's no end to this journey. Um, you know, working on operations that are you know they're very profitable. They are um, high production and very low input, and just have a system that really starts to what we call um, create this process of syntropy, so that um, that system really starts to to generate itself. Right. There's been a lot of interest in the last. Uh, I'd, I'd probably say 20 years in uh, soil health coming from, you know, all different angles. Uh, most people are aware that 2015 was the UN's International Year of Soil, which was an attempt to bring attention to the importance of soil health and some of the things that uh, that the, the UN identified as um, results of soil health or, or reasons why soil health is important is food security, which seems fairly obvious. If you don't have soil, you can't produce food. Uh, the, the economies of agricultural communities that depend on soil and food, uh, even climate stability. You mentioned in the book that uh, soils are a gigantic uh, sink for carbon, maybe even bigger than we've given them credit for and, and therefore are not just responsible for uh, mitigating for global warming, but but also for just general climate stability. Uh, poverty alleviation and sustainable development are the other two things that the UN said were important. Uh, how, why would you say soil health is important, um, adding to those things or elaborating on some of those? Um, yeah, and I guess this comes back to what got me hooked about soil in the first place, and I think uh, it everything comes back to soil, absolutely everything, um, and and I think that's and it's 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 not political as well. You know, it comes back to right. what are you passionate about? Is it human health? Is it sedimentation in the waterways? Is it fishery beds? Is it greenhouse gases? And um, you know, I think there's a different aspect to soil health that appeals to everybody on the planet. You know, and I think. Uh, it's easy to maybe forget about it living in the cities, but what they're seeing is that actually that disassociation from soil is actually having an impact on on human health of people in the cities because they're not being exposed to 
this microbial community that actually is what uh, builds resilience. Um, you know, there was a new bacteria that's discovered that they're looking at developing as a vaccine for PTSD that comes out of the soil. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this disassociation is part of that contribution to the decline in, in human health. So I think there's so many different aspects for it. And if you look at what's happening in Australia, for instance, which is um, pretty horrible at the moment, but, uh, you know, there's banks that will actually lend money to farmers based on their soil carbon. You know, they see that hmm. as we, as you build soil health, it actually has a, a linear relationship with uh, profitability. You know, and it's a big part of what we see in a lot of um, rangeland and croplands is that decline of soil health now means that there's very small profit margins in, in what's happening, yeah, globally. I realize we're, we didn't set out to do an interview on human health, but uh, your comment about mm -hmm. the connection to soil and humans made me think of some, some research that I was doing a while back, actually in response to some uh, allergy problems that one of my sons was having. And I ran across uh, a report from a, a big longitudinal study, and I can't remember where it was published, but one of the objectives of the study was to determine, you know, what are some of the possible causes for the, the massive increase in these uh, systemic, um, you know, diseases or, or syndromes in, in humans, allergies, autism, you know, you name it. Uh, just a seemingly a general decline in uh, immune system effectiveness. And one of the conclusions of the study was that uh, there are so many people who almost never have bodily contact with soil that their bodies aren't picking up uh, the beneficial organisms that populate their gut that allow them to have to mount a healthy immune response. And that uh, it was that one of the major contributing factors is children not ever contacting soil. You know, so we have <clears throat> we have this uh, this germaphobe craze where people are disinfecting everything under the sun and doctors are starting to say mm. don't disinfect everything you know you need to be exposed to stuff that comes from other people that comes from the soil in order for your body to <clears throat> to generate uh, any kind of immune response um, and the other thing that the study mentioned was that the 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 gut microbiome is is now being considered almost like a second brain because there's so many uh, functions of the human body that are connected to the microorganisms that are in our gut, which you mentioned already. But this lack of connection to the soil having you know, a, a massive and massively expensive effect on human health, especially where people are concentrated in cities, seems like a pretty big deal. Mm, yeah. So they, they term it the farm effect. And so that impact on being exposed to soil and animals and how that actually contributes to the type of microbiology that you have and the diversity of microbiology that you have. Um, they're actually saying that the gut now is the primary brain. So <laughs> the everything gets processed through the gut first and that actually signals to the brain second. Um, and they've, they've tracked this in the body and looking at actually the primary signals come from the gut. So that, that idea of listen to your gut, um, 
you should do that because it, it <laughs> that first instinctual primal response is actually more likely to be correct than than when we start huh. getting into our linear overthinking. But yeah, they're saying that over eighty percent of of our uh, health disorders are directly related to um, gut function, and the American gut is uh, in some trouble. Um, and I think we can say that the American soil is in trouble as well. So there's this whole um, inner and outer landscape. You know, actually, we, you know, we we feel like we're separated from nature, but you know, we are nature. There is no separation, but we are physically separating ourselves from it. And then now we see this cascading of of human health issues and soil health issues um, from not considering, uh, you know, holistic whole systems. And, and healthy function. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to indulge myself in a really speculative question that just came to mind. Mm. It seems like the modern farming with an emphasis on uh, frequent tillage, use of chemical fertilizers and chemicals to control every kind of pest on nearly any crop started sometime after World War II. And I'm wondering if uh, I realize this is not how experimental science works, but Temple Grandin says that we should identify things that seem to be correlated and then try to tease out causation. I'm wondering whether the increase in some of these, uh, you know, body system wide autoimmune failures started increasing about the same time that modern farming took off. I realize these are. You know, people don't like to talk about controversial ideas, but uh, how would you describe one? Do you think that there's a correlation there, even if there's not causation? And then how is modern farming hard on soil? Um, I don't think it's particularly controversial. I think the causal, there are both indirect and direct um, responses to human health from how food is grown. Um, and the there's, you know, you talk about tillage or agrochemicals or the drenches or all of the things that really make up modern agriculture have worked to decline uh, the nutrient density in food and have worked to um, reduce the amount of uh, food diversity that people are eating. And also we now have a toxic loading in our food and not just in our food, but also we are like here in the US, um, you guys have herbicides in your water, you have it in the rainfall, you have it um, pretty much in everything that people are consuming has a, a chemical soup um, attached to it. Uh, and it was interesting, I was talking to some cropping guys that were up on the high line of Montana, and we were talking about the smell of rain and, you know, that I love that smell of rain. Um, and it's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting. We can actually smell that smell because it's called geosmin or petrichor. We can smell that at like, um, you know, 5 million times stronger than what a shark can smell a drop of blood in water. Like we have mm. this huge, amazing capacity to smell that and nobody knows why, but those organisms that come up off that smell are actually really important for our, for our own health and well-being. Um, and so I was talking to these guys about the smell of rain and they said, no, it doesn't smell like that up here. What, what it smells like is herbicides. So oh what's my. coming down, oh, it was it was terrifying, actually. And the fact that they even knew, oh, that's what that smell is, that right. it, it is actually literally 
And so organic producers up in Montana um, can't export to European markets because their produce is contaminated with um, herbicides. Right. Yeah, right in the rain, right? Um, yeah. And so, and in dust and things like that. So I think I think we're really reaching a point of um, crisis and awakening because people are like, you know what? That doesn't belong in the food. And, you know, I'm seeing these issues with my children, you know, and that might be autism or um you know, cancers or, or whatever and going and asking those questions of why is this starting to happen? And, and I mean, I really see this as a wonderful opportunity because it's starting to make people question, how are we growing food? And instead of having organic labeling that says, I don't have these things, what I'd like to see is a label that says this product contains six fungicides, uh, two neonicotinoids um, and, you know, five herbicides so that people could actually choose their food based on actually was this grown considering that it was food or was it grown because this is, you know, what the chemical treadmill is, is putting farmers on. Mm -hmm. That's controversy for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what are the, I want to drill down into some of the effects of modern farming practices on soil health in particular. Uh, You know, we, Mm -hmm. we hear that tillage is hard on soil microorganisms. Uh, one of the areas that I'm interested in is the tall grass prairie. There's not much of it left, but it was one of the most diverse, mm-hmm. um, you know, grassland plant communities ecosystems in the in North America, and mm-hmm. much of it is gone. And I'm not even sure we could get it back exactly the way it was because of what if happens when you, you know, deep plow. Uh, an ecosystem like that. What are the effects of tillage on soil microorganisms? Um, yeah, so if you look at specifically at, at tillage, um, which maybe for many ranches that's not so high right. on their activity list, uh, but one of the things that it does is it destroys aggregate stability. So that's talking about your crumb structure. So it 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 collapses those, and what you're really collapsing is the the homes the schools, the um, hospital and the bar, basically, of that whole microbial community. So you think about what happens in small towns when we lose the school, we lose the hospital or, you know, gosh forbid that we lose the bar, um, entire communities actually leave. You know, there's, mm-hmm. no, there's no buildings for them to be, to sit in. And, and also as we lose aggregate stability, we lose, you know, your nitrogen cycle falls apart because a big part of that nitrogen cycle is having those those crumbs. Um, you know, and if we're coming through and chopping things up, obviously that's hugely disturbing. And the the main organism that we see leave very quickly in that situation is your fungi. And fungi are vital for um, yield, for resilience, for water holding capacity, um, for nutrient supply to the plants. And fungi are actually what hold a soil together to stop it blowing away. Um, and so what we see is if, if you do anything to really disturb um, and harm those fungal populations, what we see is soil losses. So across the U.S. right now, you guys, your biggest export in the U.S. is soil, um, continues to be soil, and you lose about 6.7 billion tons of, of topsoil per year. Um, and a big part of that is because fungi are not active. Fungi have been disrupted and they'll be disrupted by pretty much everything in our modern farming arsenal. So, mm. you know, your herbicides, your fungicides, your, um, 
the use of soluble phosphate fertilizers, all of those, overgrazing, for instance, overgrazing will take them out. And so we're just, we're losing what actually holds soil and, and holds the fabric of society together uh, through those farming practices. Yeah, that leads me to an application question. Maybe we'll just run some of those as we go here. Uh, there are some ranches that still periodically till or, or plow level soils that aren't too rocky to plant new grasses, mm. you know, in a stand that they would say has gotten tired and isn't producing yeah. as well, or they do it to try to recover an area that, you know, has mostly weeds and annual grasses to put something back in. Um, yeah. How long would it take, do you think, to recover some kind of a a healthy soil after it's been plowed and, and how would, is there a way that a person can go about that besides just mm. letting it go? Yeah. So that's a little bit of a piece of how long is a piece of string question. Um, yeah. So it depends on how degraded an environment is, but right. you know, the, the process for, for regenerative thinking is to really ask those why questions like, why is it tired or why are we seeing weeds and why are we right. seeing annual grasses or, or poor persistence? And actually, addressing uh, the issue at those root causes. So there's, in my mind, no need to come in and, and be cultivating because we need to actually address the root cause. Otherwise, you're just going to end up with more of the same problem. And so by cultivating, we actually create the conditions for more annual grasses and more weeds and right. um, poorer persistence. And so what we see is people kind of um, jump for those you know, quick kind of fixes, but those quick fixes often create more issues in the long term. And so we get interested in in that. Um, and then how long does it take? I mean, I think to restore a fully intact tall grass prairie, it's it's going to take a while. Um, obviously, perennials are going to be later in that process than your than your annual grasses. Uh, but we're certainly seeing some really interesting phenomenon in terms of seed bank germination and seeing um, what were considered locally extinct grasses coming back into ecosystems. And that process is happening within one or two years. So that's been incredibly exciting for me. And, and, and one of these processes that's an outcome of this quorum signaling is how do we switch soils on? Because that seed bank is still there. Right. Uh, my family has a, a ranch in Northern Arkansas and uh, my brother found that after maybe two or three years of grazing in a different way than they had done before. Uh, we, we had uh, a little blue stem moving back into places where it had not been seen in probably 30 or 40 years. Uh, yeah. And I don't know whether that's a, you know, just a, allowing it to be expressed. I think we see something similar on old field succession on rangelands. There's a number of places in central Washington you know, in the 10 to 14 inch rainfall zone that got plowed under and planted to wheat back in the 1950s and they got taken back or they, they were either abandoned or planted to something else, say in the 70s. And uh, it was between 20 and 30 years, depending on the site, before those fields that got planted back to improved, uh, you know, so-called improved uh, perennial grasses began to show any kind of diversity where you begin to have some lupins and other uh, forbs moving in and then eventually some shrubs. But that on its own, that successional process took about 20 years. And I'm curious whether that was a change in the quality of the soil that allowed those new plants to move in because the seed source is 
fairly ubiquitous. Um, it was not for lack of seed that those plants weren't taking off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's, there's a whole lot of different dynamics involved in the successional process. So we have a microbial succession as well as a mineral processes and that aggregate formation. Um, but yeah, we, we can really rapidly speed up that successional process. Um, and, you know, obviously grazing is your number one tool. And what I find is a lot of um, ranches are not grazing for uh, perennial tall grass systems. They are um, overgrazing. And what that creates is your annual um, dominance. And then we start to see issues. I don't know what's happening in your particular area, but, you know, things like your cheat grasses, um, right. the, uh, um, ventinata, vent, oh, ventinata, what's it yeah. Yeah, ventinata grass. Um, and, and what those species do is they actually change the microbial community and they keep it in an annual state. They actually change it to feed very primitive bacteria and archaea. So they're, they're exuding substances out their roots to keep or halt that successional process. And that's when your grazing is so important. So actually coming in and really hammering those areas and then leaving it for a long time to recover to allow those perennials to 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 set seed to get that signal to start to germinate yeah while we're on that rabbit trail how would you define overgrazing if you talk to 10 range scientists you get 17 different answers um i i define it as the inadequate recovery of a plant then not allowing a plant to reach its full genetic potential so it's the repeat bite so it's right. not the taking it down to the ground, but it's that you took it to the ground and then it then it resprouted and you grazed it again. Now that's now you've now you've overgrazed it. So you could have one horse in a hundred acre field and be overgrazing, right? Um, because that horse is going to go. Well, that's where the candy is, and it's going to keep taking you know the good stuff, right? Um, and then how would you yeah. define recovery? If, if overgrazing is regrazing before the plant has fully recovered, uh, you know, define full recovery. Uh, that's going to be dependent on the species that you're dealing with. So for some grasses, you know, getting to that three leaf stage, for some of them, it's the five leaf stage for forbs, you know, they've, they've all got different recovery periods. So I, I guess um, shaking up that recovery period, so not sitting there and go, okay, I'm going to graze every 18 months or, you know, I'm going to graze mm -hmm. every six months or whatever you're doing, but actually mixing it up because different species have different recoveries. And so um, you want to select for different species each time and go, okay, now, you know, this forb is recovered adequately. Now's the time to graze. Um, so, yeah, there's there's got to be a lot of adaption and flexibility and observation in good grazing. Sure. And some diversity in uh, the duration of grazing periods and the duration of recovery periods. Yeah. Uh, going back to some of the modern farming practices and effects on soil health, uh, while tillage is not very common on rangelands, with the exception of some you know, lower elevation, uh, deeper, flatter soil that oftentimes does get planted, uh, herbicides are quite common on mm -hmm. rangelands. Uh, especially on degraded rangelands where you have a significant weed population, you know, chemical companies will say uh, that there's research showing that if you use the herbicide that you get an increase in grass production. Uh, that may be true. What are the effects of herbicide on soil microbes? Um, well, if you consider the soil food web, um, 
you know, you're like that trophic triangle. So at the bottom of that triangle, if you think about the sea, the bottom of that triangle is your plankton. The bottom of the triangle for the food web in soil is algae. So effectively, when we use a herbicide, we take out the plankton in the sea. We take out the algae. We remove that bottom of that trophic level, which then has impacts on microbiology throughout that system. Um, a lot of the herbicides that we're using have incredibly long residual on it. You know, I think um, Monsanto has just been successfully sued for lying about the persistence of uh, glyphosate or Roundup. So Roundup sitting there for at least 22 years, that's its half-life. Um, things like 2,4-D, you're talking about 250 years of half-life. So these chemicals are sitting around in the soil for a, a really long time. And what's interesting is we see as we start to open up and flocculate um, soil that actually those chemicals can be released again, um, maybe you know six years after you've applied them. Uh, it comes back to that question again of, of what are those weeds and what are they trying to tell you and how do you address it at the root cause? Um, you know, I think a lot of these areas probably have a sheep and goat deficiency. <laughs> you know, mm. like there's something that'll actually eat that um, or training livestock to eat things or starting to ask the question of why is this yeah. particular plant growing? Um, you know, there's a lot of trace element issues on rangeland. There's a lot of... Um, biological issues so either a lack of animal impact so we're not getting um, animal trampling and manure and urine and you start to get these soils that uh, fall asleep like I think of a lot of rangeland like where we're seeing a lot of sagebrush and uh, woody shrubs those soils are the comatose soils you know there's not a lot of biological activity in there they're often got a lot of fungi and not a lot of bacteria. Um, and that really comes down to how do we get animal impact in those areas? So some things like leafy spurge are actually um, fungal dominated soils or soils that have gone to sleep. So it comes to how do we actually impact on those areas um, and maybe yeah, bring in some goats or sheep or whatever. But um, mm -hmm. all of your weeds are trying to tell you something and that, that it's actually really valuable information. And if you can figure out what it is that they're trying to tell you. And I talk about it. I've got a whole chapter in my, in the book to go into what are they trying to tell you? And then how do you address it? Because if you herbicide it, no one has ever eradicated a weed with herbicide. No one, right? You're going to be applying them again somewhere down the track instead of going, actually, how do we get off that particular treadmill? Mm -hmm. On the topic of herbicides and going back and forth between human effects and soil effects, uh, mm. I don't know whether you would want to talk about your own experience with Paraquat, which is one of the mm. more dangerous chemicals, but it's it's still around. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's and it, it's interesting to see where Paraquat is still allowed and, and not allowed. So yeah, it's it's they're still using it in New Zealand. Uh, but yeah, I I, um, I had a poisoning episode when I was fifteen with Paraquat, and uh, Paraquat is a long term residual herbicide. It's actually the leading cause of suicide in third world countries because there's no antidote for it. Um, I I, hmm. I walked on a herbicide strip and I had cuts on my feet and the herbicide entered into my body and it passes it can it can pass the blood brain barrier and basically it sat in my spinal fluid for like 15 years and I had a lot of um, uh, like headaches and just feeling really foggy all the time like everything was just in a mist um, and I was told I had fused vertebra of the C1 and C2 um, so very very limited neck mobility and 
We really didn't know what it was or what had caused the problem. So I was hospitalized. I thought I had meningitis. And um, it wasn't until I met a chemical detox specialist 15 years later that he diagnosed it as paraquat. And we we went through a pretty intensive health regime. So we used um, hyperbaric chambers and intravenous vitamin C. And what that vitamin C does is, and especially under pressure, is it actually will flush toxins out of the body. So it's becoming a more commonly used um, method for um, cancer, for instance. So the um, vitamin C will actually enter healthy cells and be broken down. But if your cells are dysfunctional and they don't have an enzyme in it, then the vitamin C will actually um, cause a chemical reaction and produce hydrogen peroxide. So it will effectively kill some types of cancers. So they are using this now in different parts of the world. So um, what was, I think, most interesting for me around that whole chemical poisoning was that I didn't realize that I'd been chemically poisoned and yet my whole career and what I'd been doing had been focusing on how is it we can get some of these, how, how can we get the chemicals out of the food? How do we get the chemicals out of the environment um, and still be profitable and productive? Yeah, just another quick question. What was Paraquat being used for specifically in New Zealand? Uh, herbicides. Just a generic broadleaf herbicide? Yeah, yeah. So the herbicide resistance is taking off all over the world. And so we're seeing chemicals that used to be banned now coming back onto the market, um, which <laughs> just makes no sense to me. I'm sorry. You know, it's like we need a bigger and bigger hammer uh, to deal with issues that are actually telling you the hammer's the problem. <laughs> so in New Zealand, you know, typically uh, some of the vineyards we were working on, they might have been using, you know, five herbicides a season and still not able to control um, some of their weeds, like the mm. herbicide-resistant rye and mallow and things. And so uh, they're now reintroducing paraquat into vineyards. So, you know, we can get paraquat um, terroir-flavoured wines out of New Zealand. It's marvellous. <laughs> yeah, I found on a toxicology uh, website that paraquat poisoning is a leading cause of fatal poisoning in Asia, the Pacific Islands, and parts of South and Central America, and that more than 70% of paraquat poisonings result in death. So I guess you're lucky. Yeah. It was very lucky, yeah. And like I said, it, it is the leading cause. And I've heard stories of farmers actually having paraquat accidentally spilt on them um, one instance, he died on the way to the house. So he was dead in the driveway and his wife drove up the driveway and beside his body were two dogs that were also dead because they licked him. Mm. Um, so it, it can it can be a, a very rapid um, way to die. If it's not rapid, then I think it's incredibly painful and then you're going to die right. because there's no antidote. Yeah. So, no, I was very lucky. And what's interesting is I meet producers that say, well, we sprayed para paraquat our whole lives and we're fine. And that's when I'll say to them, well, tell me about your kids. And they'll say, well, you know, so-and-so's got autism. This one's uh, died when she was eight from childhood leukemia. And so that mm -hmm. comes back to the epigenetic stuff again, as you find there are, in New Zealand anyway, there's a lot of uh, chemical applicators that are now involved in regenerative agriculture because they've directly seen the impact on their families Um and it's it's really got them thinking. Wow, what 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 have I been doing? What have I been you know responsible for? And it, that's a really really heart wrenching thing to face. That actually your actions may have led to what's happening with your kids. And a lot of the research is showing, and it's really difficult research to do. But things like fungicides and pesticides are changing that epigenetic expression. So maybe not for you, and maybe not even for your children, but for your grandchildren. 
And that's terrifying because it's really hard stuff to one research to prove when you talk about causal factors and then three, do anything about it when it's now your grandchild that's born this way. So that's why I really feel a sense of um, urgency, I guess, in having these conversations around, okay, how do we get this stuff out of the food chain? And producers that I'm working with have managed to do that across, you know, the entire operation, if that's vineyards or if it's cropping or if it's in, in ranching, how do we get the chemicals out of the food? Well, I was going to... Uh, shift in the conversation toward solutions instead of problems, and I, you just did it. Mm-hmm. What are some of your yeah. recommendations, both in you know in crop farming and in uh, on on rangelands to improve soil health? Yeah, well, I think with cropping, um, you got to look at what actions have already been happening, and and often the the best the, the big, biggest place to start is just stop killing stuff. Right? Let, let's stop harming our underground workforce and then look at what are the actual limiting factors to production. So we we have a five-step kind of process where we look at, is it your, we call them the five M's, is it your minerals, your microbes, your management, is it organic matter or is it mindset um, that's causing the limitation on, on any property? And what you generally find is mindset is often the biggest issue that we've got to deal with, which is, mm-hmm. you know, what is possible and, and how do we do these things? Um, and what's exciting about cropping is they're often spending quite a lot of money. And so we can come in and save them just, you know, extraordinary amounts of money just to right. get started, you know, because so much of what's being put on is either inefficient or wasteful. Uh, you think about nitrogen, you know, globally, only 5% of nitrogen that's used as fertilizer is actually used by the plant. Even if you're a really, really, really good producer, you might have a 35% efficiency, which mm. means most of the nitrogen that we put on is effectively either flushed out the waterways or up into the atmosphere. So we look at how do we use biology um, or feed microbes or balance your carbon to nitrogen ratio to to mop up those inefficiencies. So um yeah, so you really look at well, what is it that's causing the harm? You know, is it things like pesticides or fungicides, or is it overgrazing? Is it um, not getting adequate um, grazing management? You know, is your you know your pasture size is huge and you've got no water? You know, like really looking at what is it that's creating these issues that any producer might be seeing. Um, yeah, and then what might be required as a catalyst. So I do work with a lot of guys that have been doing holistic grazing or holistic management for a long time, uh, and they've they've plateaued and they, they, they can't figure out why their systems are plateauing or their soil health is not improving. And then we'll have a look, and it might be that they're just missing some kind of catalyst, and it could be just a little bit of a trace element um, or a little bit of sodium, I know, which sounds quite weird, but, um, sometimes it's just putting something small into a system and, you know, typically the rangeland guys I'm working with, I guess they average around 10,000 acres, but I mean, I've got some massive operations Mm -hmm. that I work with as well. And, And it's like, how do we put a catalyst out? Um, and so we are using worm castings. Um, we are using trace elements. We do use a bit of Redmond salt on land uh, that's not alkali, obviously. Um, and what we're seeing is those soils respond. And so on a big operation, we might go, okay, we're going to address the irrigated areas first and get that to pay forward. So um, if if we're, if we're working with um, hay ground or irrigated ground, can we increase the quality of what we're producing? Can we increase the volume of what we're producing? And then 
put those um, put those uh, additional value into treating then the rangeland. Okay, and then we might do a thousand acres of rangeland this year and do a thousand acres the next year. Um, so not trying to eat the whole elephant at once, but um, you know, trying to just just to to get through what we can. Um, and typically, as we're seeing these benefits, um, ranches that I'm working with are probably treating about two and a half thousand acres a year. Um, as they see the benefits in plant germination, diversity, quality, animal performance, um, and carrying capacities. And what do you see as the most common problems in grazing management where that's a limiting factor? Uh, are there any commonalities that, that you think are particularly relevant for Western ranchers? I think the biggest issue really is not being able to manage pastures effectively because of the size of pastures. Um, and so, and it's interesting looking at some of the studies that are happening over range riding and, and herding um, and some of the soil changes. Uh, um, uh, Glenn Altsinger, who's at Elder Spring Ranch uh, up in Idaho, they are using in herding and they've taken, in the last 10 years, they've taken their soil organic matter from 2.5% to 6.5% just through controlling um, animal movement. And what they're seeing is they, they you know, they're, Carrying capacity's increased. The amount of diversity's gone through the roof. They've gone from, I think, three dominant species to over sixty. And so, um, <clears throat> being able to manage our, our grazing more, like to to try and replicate what was it that the bison were doing? You know, can we concentrate movement and get animals to continue to move across the landscape so they're not just you know dispersed out there? And economically, it does actually stack up. And this is what's interesting to see the work coming out of Western Sustainability Exchange is can you pay the wages of somebody who's living and shepherding with, with cattle or sheep? Um, and yes, actually here are the, you know, here are the benefits that we can see from doing that. Um, I guess the problem often is getting started because uh, yeah, it take, you know, that might mm -hmm. be another two year or three year where you see those financial benefits. Um, but yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. And then infrastructure and things like water. So uh, the Native Energy Project that's running in Montana at the moment, they're actually paying ranchers up front for car what they're talk talking about a carbon project, but what they're really doing is looking at behavior management or behavior change so that uh, you can afford to put in water or put in more fencing so that you can actually um, control grazing a lot more effectively. And knowing that you can graze, you can graze more effectively, your carbon levels are going to increase. Yeah, the argument that I suspect typically comes against that is that it takes a fair bit of money to pay for that infrastructure. And, you know, do you get a corresponding increase in yield and or profitability sufficient to pay for the infrastructure in any kind of a reasonable, you know, time frame? Well, I think that's why that's why this Native Energy Project's actually been paying the ranches. So they get a lump sum for a modeled predicted increase in carbon over a five-year period, they actually get that as a lump sum so that they can pay for water. Um, the other thing that we're still waiting on and it hasn't come into the States yet is virtual grazing or virtual fencing. Um, so using uh, satellites and collars, electric collars basically to control um, livestock movement, right. which on some of these really big expansive operations, you couldn't afford to get uh, the fencing in um, and you couldn't afford to control livestock unless you had a herder 
um, you know, and I just find a lot of people these days don't want to herd, you know, they don't want to live with livestock anymore. Like that time is like gone, but we're seeing young people coming through that actually are excited by the romance of that idea of actually, you know, living in a sheep wagon and, and living with cattle. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you the, the final word on any, any further recommendations on where people could go to learn more about uh, what you do or about improving soil health on rangelands? Well, my book's out, uh, but the audio book should hopefully be out before Christmas. At least that's what we're aiming for. And I find a lot of people these days, audio books for busy lives, especially if you're shepherding and you're sitting in that sheep wagon, you can listen to an audio book. Um, but it just seems like there's an incredible amount of resources now online to, to learn and expand from. Um, yeah, and I'm sure you've had some of those speakers on before. Where's the best place for folks to buy your book? Um, they can get it off Amazon, yeah, in the US. And then the okay. audio, audio book would be available uh, through all audio type channels. Maybe one final question. Are there, are there some uh, ranches that you've worked with that you think are a, a mature example of doing this well that folks might look to if they were interested in uh, seeing something on the ground? Mm. Good question. Um, I, you know, I think everybody's at different stages of whatever they're whatever they're addressing. Um, you know, I'm really enjoying right now. I'm staying on Indrilin Ranch. Um, uh, they are in big timber, um, and it's been extraordinary to work with them and just sort of watch the changes in terms of lifting quality of of what they're producing um, and actually really addressing rangeland. Um, they're doing some really innovative out, out of the box kind of stuff. I think Older Spring Ranch would be really worthwhile people going and having a look at. Well, Nicole, I have really appreciated your time and our conversation and uh, we'll let, let you get back to the ranch today. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. That was really fun speaking with you. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.